If I were to begin the sentence, there are two kinds of people in the world, uh, how might you finish that sentence? Where I grew up, a lot of people would finish that sentence. There are Kentucky fans and there are Louisville fans. Big rivalry in my home state, and both sides like to pick on each other. If you grew up a little south of here, you might say Alabama fans and Auburn fans. Uh, you might, your mind might go to personality types. Of course, most of you are thinking, Taylor, there's nine types of people in the world, not two types of people in the world. But your mind might go to something like introversion and extroversion. There are introverts and there are extroverts. And if you grew up, for example, in a family of introverts and then an extrovert came into your life, you might have had moments where you were trying to figure out what that person is and why they won't leave you alone or vice versa. You might wonder why that guy is sitting across the room reading a book and doesn't want to be talked to. You might have to figure out what's, what's going on with these people. Uh, based on Clint's sermon last week, you might say that there are people who enjoy Sylvester Stallone movies and those who don't. And I'm happy to report to you that we have uh, great diversity among our pastors here at King's Cross in that regard. One article that I found this week said there are two kinds of people in the world, those who divide the world into two kinds of people and those who are too smart to do that. I thought that was a bit ironic. Just leave that there. Based on Galatians 2, what we're going to see this morning is that Paul basically divides the world into religious people and irreligious people. But contrary to what you might expect coming to a church, one is not better than the other. In fact, they both have the same great problem, and they both have the same glorious solution to that problem. We're in Galatians 2, verses 15 through 17 this morning. Turn there with me, and I'll read God's word for us. We are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. And yet, because we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we ourselves have believed in Christ Jesus. This was so that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no human being will be justified. But if we ourselves are also found to be sinners while seeking to be justified by Christ, is Christ then a promoter of sin? Absolutely not. This is the word of the Lord. Well, for context, last week, Clint showed you that, that Paul, in, Ephesians, in, in, rather, in Galatians 2, 11 through 14, is recounting this conversation or really confrontation that he had with the Apostle Peter. And the main point of that confrontation was, Peter, stop building barriers between people and Christ. Stop building barriers between people and the church. Stop adding to justification by faith alone. And some scholars think that, that Paul's recounting of that conversation ends in verse 14. Others think it ends in verse 21, and others think it ends somewhere else along the way. Well, for context for our text this morning, I think it at least goes through verses 17 or 18, and I'll report back to you in a couple of weeks on how far I think it goes. But I think it at least goes through our text today because Paul keeps referring to we ourselves and he keeps referring to we ourselves as Jews, which would be a strange thing for him to do if he's directly addressing the Galatians who are not Jews. So I think he's still recounting his conversation with Peter in our text today. Now, there's so much to see here. And in fact, I plan to preach through verse 21 this week. And instead, I'm going to take three weeks to preach just these seven short verses uh, because there is so much to pull out. So today, just focusing on 15 through 17. And here's what I want us to see first, that Paul 
in recounting his conversation with Peter, reveals, as I've already said, that there are fundamentally two types of people in the world. In verse 15, he says, we are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Now, you have to understand something about Peter and Paul's world, their religious background, and their, their worldview. They were Jews, and they had the story of the Old Testament and, and the religious traditions of their people, which told them rightly that God called the Jewish people out of the world for himself. They were a special nation, a special people that was taken out of the world by God and made holy, made clean. They were given the law to make them moral, to teach them how to live lives that would be different than everybody else that would make them stand apart from everybody else. And so their whole religious system was built on the idea that they, the people on the inside, were clean and were holy and that everybody on the outside, Gentiles, non-Jews, were sinful unholy and unclean. Now, in our terms, 2,000 years later, we can, we can translate this roughly as not just Jews and Gentiles, but religious people and irreligious people. Those, I think Paul is saying, are the two kinds of people in the world. There are those who follow all the rules. There are those who obey all the commandments, who do all the right things, who believe all the right doctrine, who, who, who are always on their best behavior. And then there are those who are not. Uh, Jesus illustrates this so well in, in the parable in Luke 15 of the prodigal son. There are older brothers who stay home working constantly, doing everything they can to, to, to be on their best behavior, slaving away for their dad, never asking for anything. And then there are younger brothers who go to dad and say, you're worth more to me dead than alive. Give me my share of the inheritance so I can go spend it on wild and reckless living. Now, as different as these two groups are, Religious people and irreligious people, they have one great problem. It's the second point of the sermon, namely sin. That's the, the common great problem of religious and irreligious people alike. And it's a problem that neither group can admit about themselves. Now, whenever we use religious terminology that has a lot of baggage like sin, I like to stop and define it. So what is sin? So I want to explain it uh, for the kids who are in the room for the second week uh, today. What is, what is sin? You've heard this word. Sin is kind of like a sickness. Uh, you've, you've been sick before. You've had a runny nose. You've had a cough. You've had a fever. You've felt tired, felt grumpy. And maybe when you've been sick, at some point you've gone to the doctor with your mom and dad, and you've overheard the doctor talking to your parents, and they say, what are their symptoms? Now, symptoms is a really big word that just means you have a runny nose, you have a cough, you have a fever, something like that. But it also means that this, the runny nose is not actually the sickness. There's something going on inside of your body that's wrong, that's sick, that causes your runny nose, your fever, your tiredness, or whatever. Sin is like that. Sin is like a sickness in your heart. It's like there's something wrong with your heart that, that causes certain things on the outside of your life. But the difference in sin and sickness is, my guess is none of you kids have ever woken up one morning and just said, I think I'll go get sick today. I think I would like to, to be sick. No, but sin is something that we willingly choose. It's a sickness of the heart that we participate in. Sin, you could say, for the grown-ups now, is both the condition of the human heart and the manifestation of that condition through certain actions. We commit sins because we are sinful. Now, whenever I say that, I have to back up because people here, 
human beings are inherently bad and worthless and terrible and, and intrinsically awful. And that's not actually what the Bible teaches. In fact, if you go to the beginning, you see God creating the world. And after every day of creation, he says, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. And then he creates humanity and he says, it's very good. He says, that's the best thing I've made. The problem is not that human beings were intrinsically bad, but we were created good and became corrupt. So another illustration, um, since I already mentioned, up, mentioned growing up in Kentucky, my parents grew up in coal country in eastern Kentucky. And I had, growing up, I had a great, great aunt named Artie. And she was amazing and wonderful. And if you were to hear her talk, I would have to translate it for you. And she lived in a place that most of you would not believe on the side of a mountain. In fact, uh, long before the legalized hemp industry, I'm pretty sure she was making her own medicine in her backyard. And one of the last times that we were able to, to go visit her, we went with my parents and my aunt and uncle. And when Artie was younger, she made pies and cakes in town. She made, supplied these restaurants. She was the best baker in town. And at this point, she's probably 85 years old. And my dad and my uncle, brothers who were going up, were so excited because they knew Artie was going to make a particular kind of cake that they grew up eating and they loved and they couldn't wait to get there and eat it. But they, they didn't think about the fact that in her older age, a few screws loose, and where she lives, her house is powered by coal. And so she, she made the cake, but then she left it out in a place in her house where it got covered in coal dust. And they were so excited about the cake that they didn't realize this before they got a piece. And I think it was my dad who first took a big bite. And he had the wherewithal in the moment, not to say that's terrible, not to react, but to look at his brother and say, that is so good. You got, you got to take a bigger bite than that. And of course, moments later, they're sneaking out the back and finding a place to throw away their coal corrupted cake. Now, what, what's the point of this metaphor? The point is that Artie doesn't bake bad cakes. She was the best baker in town, right? There wasn't anything intrinsically wrong with the cake. The problem was that it was corrupted by, by coal dust. And in a similar way, God creates humanity good, but humanity has been corrupted by something much, much darker and worse than coal. And now we act out of that corrupted nature. But nobody can admit it. Religious people can't admit that they're sinners because they believe they're better than that. Their attitude is, I'm not that bad. Sure, some people are that bad, but not me. And irreligious people, on the other hand, know that they're not necessarily better than anyone else, but they say, nobody's that bad. Listen, you're, like the place that I get my haircut says, you are okay. That's like their logo branded on the side of the building. You're okay, I'm okay, we're all okay. Another way to put it is religious people know that sinners deserve judgment, but they say, I'm too good for that. I grew up in church. I know the Ten Commandments. I don't get drunk. I don't sleep around. I don't swear. Or as we, we saw a couple weeks ago, right, you can be religious, and that's like the, the conservative fundamentalist religious person. There's the progressive religious person too, right, who says, I, I vote the right way. I'm on the right side of history. I'm in line with all the social orthodoxy. Sure, some people deserve to be cast out of society, but not me. I'm too good for that. Irreligious people, on the other hand, say God's too good for that. Nobody's going to be judged. Nobody's going to be condemned. Nobody's going to hell because God's too good for that. He's too nice. He's too compassionate. He's too merciful. He's going to let everybody off the hook. And indeed, the whole idea that people are inherently sinful and that God is going to judge them, they would say, is, is harmful. I read an article this week in Psychology Today 
It's all about how harmful Christianity is. And it said Christianity teaches children that they're intrinsically evil. They did nothing wrong, but just by being born and being alive, they're evil. This is a terrible thing to teach children, not only because it's false, but because it is the exact wrong message children should be taught, which is that they're intrinsically wonderful, noble, and lovable, and they have boundless goodness inside of them. Now, first of all, is that even what Christianity teaches? No, as we just said, we're not, we were created good, and we willingly sin, but beyond that, it's, I don't know, it's an interesting argument. It says, this is the wrong thing because it's not the right thing, which is X, which is an interesting way to argue, but nonetheless, it's still a popular idea, and there's, there's actually a Christian version of this idea. Formally, it's called universalism. It's basically just the idea that in the end, God's gonna let everybody off the hook, and there's gonna be no judgment. But are, are either of these, these arguments, these philosophies, these approaches to life, the religious or the irreligious approach, I'm not that bad or nobody's that bad, are, are either of them true? And I, I don't mean right now even, are they true biblically speaking? I just mean, are they, are they intellectually or experientially satisfying? Do they make sense of our experience of the world? Take the irreligious view first. In, in 1907, uh, there's a theologian by the name of Shiler Matthews. He was a prominent Baptist theologian at the University of Chicago, and he wrote a book called The Church and the Changing Order, which was all about how the church needed to change to keep up with the times in the 20th century. Uh, we've been writing these books for hundreds of years. And in, in the book, he just rails against what he calls old school Christianity, basically saying that what we need today is a spirit of love and peace and brotherhood and to recognize that everybody's good and we just need some enlightenment and education to get along. But you have these fundamentalists over here who won't shut up about sin and depravity. He says they're holding the church back and they're harming people with this doctrine. And, and Matthews was typical of what historians of theology call Protestant liberalism. And it was everywhere in the early 20th century. And you had all these bright young theologians being brought up in Protestant liberalism. And then World War I happened. And it was interesting that really the home of Protestant liberalism was Germany. And you had all these bright young theologians, people you may have heard of like Karl Barth or Dietrich Bonhoeffer or um, uh, Richard and Reinhold Niebuhr who grew up in Protestant liberalism. And then they, they witnessed World War I. And they saw the atrocities that people committed against each other, the carnage of the world, the sin, the depravity, the brokenness, the evil. And they said that, that idea that, that people aren't that bad and God's too good to judge just utterly fails to make sense of a world where World War I can happen. And one of them, Richard Niebuhr, later summed up the message of Protestant liberalism this way. He said, a God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministry of a Christ without a cross. In other words, it's just a big nothing burger. There's just, there's just nothing in it. And Niebuhr and Bonhoeffer and Barth and others realized that if nobody's that bad, how do we explain World War I? And we could ask, how do we explain World War II? How do we explain concentration camps? How do we explain the persistence still of racism personally and systemically? How do we explain the persistence of misogyny personally and systemically? Why do you lock your door at night? Why do you carry pepper spray on your keychain if, if nobody's that bad? if everybody's basically good. And if God is just too nice to judge any of this, then I'm sorry, but I don't have any interest in worshiping that kind of God because he's either just 
totally fallen asleep at the wheel or he doesn't care. And in either case, he's overseeing the greatest miscarriage of justice imaginable. The, the irreligious idea that you're okay and I'm okay and God's not going to judge anybody is just utterly unsatisfying. But you're at church this morning. So you probably agree with everything I just said, and you're, you're probably nodding along. But maybe deep in the recesses of your heart, it's because you think you're better than people out there. And you agree that there's sinful people out there who do horrible things and they should be judged and God should judge them, but not me. I'm not like that. Paul addresses you directly in Romans chapter 2. Romans 1 through 3 is really just a big theological exposition of what he kind of alludes to here in Galatians uh, 2. In, in Romans chapter 1, he shows that, that Gentile sinners are deserving of God's judgment, but then in Romans 2, he shows that even religious people are deserving of God's judgment. He asks, are you any better? And here's the problem for religious people is that we're not graded on a curve. God doesn't grade us in comparison to the people around us. He holds us up in the light of his own holiness. This is what Jesus is getting at in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you've never murdered anybody. Good job. Have you ever been angry at somebody? He says, you've never had an affair. Good. Have you ever lusted after somebody who's not your spouse? He says, you've never stolen from anybody. Have you ever been greedy? Have you ever envied or been jealous of what belongs to somebody else? And he sums it all up and he says, be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. Are there any, anybody want to raise their hand, any perfect people in the room? C.S. Lewis at the very beginning of Mere Christianity said, there's, there's two facts that everybody knows in the world across time and space, across cultures, across religions. The first is that we ought to behave in a certain way. And the second is that nobody actually behaves that way, even religious people. Alexander Solzhenitsyn was a Russian who lived in the 20th century who uh, was a, put in a prison camp for criticizing Joseph Stalin during World War II. And he grew up religious and then he became irreligious, but while he was there, he began to observe what was going on around him. He watched the prison guards who were these otherwise ordinarily ordinary people, uh, dads and husbands and men who worked normal jobs doing horrific things to prisoners. And then he observed the prisoners and watched how they responded in themselves, amongst one another. And then he listened to his own heart and his own thoughts. And you might think that he would come away from that experience thinking, there are two kinds of people in the world. There are the terrible people who can do stuff like that, and then there's innocent victims. But what gradually became clear to him was that in a different context, in a different situation, the roles could have been easily reversed. And he and everybody else who was being oppressed could have been the oppressors. And he famously wrote, gradually it was disclosed to me that the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties, but right through every human heart and through all human hearts. The line between good and evil is not between rich and poor. It's not between Republican and Democrat. It's not between black and white. It's not even between religious and irreligious. The line between good and evil, he says, passes between every single human heart. The good is still there. The image of God is permanently tattooed on you. It's not going anywhere. And yet, every human heart is corrupted by sin. 
And religion and irreligion are just our attempts to cover that up. They're just our attempts to solve our great problem, to, to, to find a way not to admit that we are broken, that we are sinful, that we are weak, that we deserve God's judgment. This is what we're talking about with the term self-justification. Remember, you, you can't understand Galatians if you don't understand the concept of justification, which is a legal term that means the, the verdict has come in, the, the voice from on high has said you are not guilty, you are innocent, you are in the right, you are justified. And self-justification is the process by which we try to get that on our own by our own performance. And religion and irreligion are just two mirror opposites that are trying to do the same thing. And to be clear, to make this really practical, don't think about this just in terms of your religious life. It's not just that you're constantly trying to justify yourself through religion. We're constantly trying to justify ourselves all the time in everything that we do. Here's a few examples of just, just things that I've talked to people about or experienced myself. Uh, we have several young moms in our church. We have several young moms, just Lindsay and I do, in our friend circles and family. And uh, one of the challenges of modern parenting is that every mom is asking herself the question, do I want to stay home full-time with my kids or do I want to go work outside of the house? And one of the things that I hear from so many moms is, I feel guilty all the time about my decision whichever one it is. And I'm constantly wondering, should I change my decision and should I go do the opposite thing? I'm anxious about it. I feel guilty about it all the time. What is that? That's just a, a cry for justification. It's just a deep desire to hear the verdict and the voice from on high that says you're doing the right thing. You don't need to worry about it. Or closer to home for myself, Maybe no other husband has this experience, but sometimes I still feel like I'm in the middle school cafeteria walking up to a girl that I'm flirting with and hoping that she will respond in kind with the way that I view my wife. I, I'm still wondering, does she like me back? Does she love me back? Does she accept me? Does she receive me? And I'm constantly wondering, am I enough? Am I good enough? Am I doing enough? Am I handy enough? Am I reliable enough, dependable enough? Do I work enough, but not too much? And I'm constantly wondering, am, do I have the verdict, the voice from on high that says, you are enough, you are accepted? I, I think of this in relation to some of my single friends who, who desperately want to be married, who, among other things, will, will say things that kind of boil down at times to what I really just want is for somebody else to choose me and to tell me that they want to be with me and that they, they think I'm attractive and they think I'm enjoyable to be around and they love me enough to spend the rest of their life with me. I want the verdict that somebody wants that. I think about people who move to Nashville to try to make it in music or, or whatever else, uh, who come here and they work two jobs to make enough money and they play a bunch of covers on Broadway that they don't like playing and they try to go to the co-writes and they try to meet the people and do all the things and after a while they feel like if you've seen La La Land, if you haven't, you should, but the scene where Mia works for months and months and months to put on the play that she wrote and she gets there and there's like half a dozen people there and she walks away and she just says, I'm just going home. It just, it just hurts too much to put myself out there 
dying for that stamp of approval and not to get it. It's just too painful. I just can't do it anymore. It's, it's not just religion. It's, it's, it's not just spiritual matters or theological matters. In every part of our lives, we're constantly trying to justify ourselves. And also, for what it's worth, we can waffle back in our own hearts between irreligion and religion because on one day we feel pretty good about our decision, right? We feel pretty good about our work. We got, you know, the approval and the praise that we want. So we think I'm good enough. And on the very next day we don't get in. And so we tell ourselves, I'm just trying the best that I can. Paul understood this and he was deeply religious Philippians 3, he lists basically his religious credentials and says, I'm the most religious guy in the room. I'm more religious than all the rest of you put together. And then he, scholars of the Greek language debate this, but he probably says a cuss word in Philippians chapter 3. He says, here's all my religious credentials. I consider them garbage now that I know Christ. And you can use your imagination. He, he came to the place where he could look at his own religious performance and, and he could recognize, I'm not enough. I can't do it. I can't earn my own justification. I can't earn God's love and approval. And he says this in, in our text. He, he admits, he says, Peter, if we ourselves are found to be sinners, we'll get more into the rest of that verse next week. But he says, you and I, the two, like, this is one of the areas where Christianity is so unique. No other religion would point to the pillars of their faith outside of God himself and say they're, they're sinners. They're just as bad as you and I are. And they admit it. And Paul can say in the New Testament, I'm the chief of sinners. We're no different. We have the same great problem. The question is, how can we admit it? How can we, like Paul, get to the place where we can admit it? We can admit that we're not enough. And the answer is only if there is a solution as glorious as the problem is great. Only if there's a solution to our problem that's as glorious as the problem is great. And Paul thinks that there is. And he says, because we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, that, that we can't do enough. He says, we ourselves have believed in Christ Jesus. This was so that we might be justified. Here's the glorious solution for every person, religious or irreligious. The solution that is so much greater than our great problem. It is justification by faith. You receive the verdict. You receive the voice from on high that says, you are good enough, not because you're good enough but because you are in Christ, my son, who is good enough. How does this work? Through what Martin Luther called the, the double transaction. Uh, I want you to imagine a scenario with me for a moment. You're in, you're in debt. You're in mega debt. Like, just for the sake of this exercise, let's say you owe a gazillion dollars in back taxes, and you make like $50,000 a year, so you're never going to be able to pay it off. And so they tell you, you're going to go to jail until you can pay it off. Well, you're never going to be able to pay it off, so you're in jail for the rest of your life. And, and thinking about the accountants in the room telling me why this metaphor doesn't work afterwards, but just spare me. Uh, the day before you're going to go to prison for the rest of your life, you get a call from a number you don't know, and you say, what the heck, I'll just answer it, and it's Bill Gates on the other end. And he says, listen, I read about your story in the newspaper. I've taken an interest in it. And I want you to know that I've already been in touch with the IRS and I've paid off all of your back taxes uh, and you're not going to go to prison anymore. 
that's amazing. Like the burden is lifted. You get to go back to your family and your life and you don't have to go to prison for the rest of your life. And you say, thanks, Mr. Gates. And you're getting ready to hang up. And he says, but wait, there's, there's one more thing. Uh, I've taken such an interest in your case and in you that uh, I've already taken the liberty of adding you to my bank account. And there's a credit card on its way with your name on it. It's attached to my line. It's an unlimited credit line. And uh, I've also started the process of formally, ad formally adopting you so that when I die, you will be an heir of the Gates fortune. Well, now you don't just get to go back to your normal life, but you can have anything that you want. <laughs> Everything in the world, practically speaking, belongs to you. That's the double transaction. It's not just that your debts are paid, it's that you then get everything that Jesus deserves. People sometimes say justification means just as if I'd never sinned. That's only half of it. Justification means just as if you had lived the life that Jesus lived. He pays your debts, he takes your sins on himself, on the cross at an infinite cost to himself. And in doing so, he, yes, forgives you of your sins, but that's just the door. And once the doorway has been opened, you walk into what? To relationship with God. You've been given clean hands, you've been given a pure heart so you can have an intimate relationship and, and a relationship of love you can be adopted by you can become an heir, not of Bill Gates, but of God himself who owns what? Everything. This is the, the solution to our great problem isn't do more, work harder, be better. That's religion. But neither is it God will just overlook everything in the end. The solution is so much better than that. And I have to say that this is the solution not just to your greatest problem, but to all the other problems as well. All the, all the examples I listed earlier. What would it, what would it be like if you went into the decision about moms, am I gonna work or am I gonna stay home? How am I gonna, what's my birthing plan gonna be? How are we gonna school our kids? If you went into that decision knowing the verdict has already come in, I am innocent. I am justified, not by my decision about this or what other people think about my decision, but by faith in Christ. Husbands, when you're trying to constantly measure up to, to your wife's, Approval, what would it be like if you knew in the back of your mind, I've already been justified. The verdict has already come in. Single friends, what would it be like if you went into looking for a spouse knowing I'm not, this has no bearing on my eternal standing. I get forever as God's son, God's daughter. Students, employees, you go into your job, you go into school, you go into coming out of your elite high school and needing to go and, and keep the performance up in college, what would it be like if you went in and just thought, I don't have to perform for anybody because Jesus Christ already performed in my place. And so I'm accepted and the voice of approval has come in from the best place imaginable. So it doesn't matter if I get anybody else's acceptance or not. The solution to our great problems as we sing in one of the church's most gospel-rich hymns, is rock of ages, cleft for me, broken apart, opened up. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin, the double cure, the double transaction, save from wrath and make me pure. Do you believe that? 
Are you clinging to that? Have you taken hold of Christ by faith and are you clinging to him? The rock of ages who was broken for you, are you hiding yourself in him? Trusting that he and he alone and not your religion and not your irreligion can save you from God's wrath because he already paid the price for it and can make you pure with his own purity so that when God the Father looks at you, he does not see your sin and your mistakes and your failures. He sees the record of Jesus Christ and he loves you with the same love with which he has loved his son from eternity past. Do you have that? Or are you still looking for another solution? Are you stuck in your religion, constantly trying to do enough, suffering under the weight of performance, or as Psalm 127 puts it, eating the bread of anxious toil? Are you stuck in your irreligion, trying, trying to push the self-condemning thoughts out of your head, trying to, to lie to yourself and tell yourself, we're all okay, you're okay, I'm okay, we're all gonna be okay? Are you tired of that? Take hold of Jesus by faith and just receive his record in your place and stop trying to earn your own. And Christian, just a couple considerations as we close. We can drift. We can drift back into religion or irreligion as individual Christians or as a church. Uh, and in fact, I find that what often happens is we drift into the polar opposite of whatever we were before we were Christians. So many of you may have grown up in really rigid, moralistic religious context, and at some point you were exposed to the grace of the gospel. And it was like a million pounds were lifted off your shoulders. But at some point along the way, you forgot that grace isn't meant to just save you, it's meant to change you. And that you ought to live a life of thankfulness to God and pursuing holiness. And so what do you do? You take advantage of grace and you boast in your moral laxity because I'm saved by grace. And in an ironic twist, you actually become an older brother toward older brothers. You're judgmental toward judgmental people. You look at people who you don't think have grace for others and you don't have any grace for them. The flip side, and this is, I, I will confess that I wrestle with this. Those who are saved out of the younger brother life, the gospel changes them and they see the beauty of being freed from sin and living a life of holiness, and they start to change the way that they live by the grace of the Holy Spirit, but somewhere along the way they forget that they still need the grace of the gospel as much as they did the day they were saved, that they're no better than anybody else, that the, the, foot, the ground is level at the foot of the cross, and they start to become judgmental toward people who they think are not as serious as them. And they look at the decisions that other Christians make, and they think, I don't understand how, how they could do that if they're a Christian. Are you drifting? Do you need to just come back to faith alone and remember that you're saved by grace alone through faith alone? The church father, Tertullian, said that Jesus was crucified on the cross between two thieves to demonstrate the fact that the gospel lies between the two thieves of religion and irreligion. Religion and irreligion want to take away what the gospel gives us. My favorite basketball team's head coach often says during the season, we're not gonna let anybody steal our joy. If the media is talking bad about them or people are doubting them, he says, listen, no, nobody's gonna steal our joy. Religion and irreligion want to steal the joy of the gospel. Let's not let that happen. 
in your own heart or in our church. Let's instead just cling to the cross, cling to Christ and experience the joy and the life and the love and the peace that's given to us there.